Welcome to Dolly Shares, a show where Dolly Howard shares her experiences, thoughts, and emotions, as only Dolly can. This is a pre-recorded presentation. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. You're listening to Dolly Reads for you, and... uh, this I am pre-recording now, and uh, so this one will be for August 21st, 2018. I'm Dolly Howard, and Nancy Hopkins is the producer, and uh, she and my daughter Annette have suggested to me that I do the pre-recording of the readings because I can take breaks whenever I need to and not disrupt the listeners. Trying to get situated here. I didn't get all settled in before I started recording because I'm really excited about this book. That's why I'm recording ahead of times because I want to read the book, so as I'm reading it, I may as well record it. Um, The book is written by Jim Mars. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Rule by Secrecy. Title of the book is Above Top Secret. Uncover the Mysteries of the Digital Age. UFOs, Aliens, 9-11, NWO, Police State, Conspiracies, Cover-Ups, and much more. They don't want you to know about. (laughs) And so I started this last, for this, well, actually, you're going to hear it beginning today. Uh, So, this will be for next week. Boy, trying to confuse the heck out of myself, aren't I? Um, So, I will continue. Oh, I wanted to read the uh, gloss, not glossary, what do you call it? Table of contents, that's what I, so that you can get excited like I am. Maybe. There's the foreword, we read the introduction, now we've started. The chapter was 9-11, an inside job. (coughs) Excuse me. We started that. And we're in the middle of it, and we'll continue with that today. Is the supply of oil peaking? Why did the Air Force change its story on Stephenville? Do road signs contain hidden codes? Now, see, I'd never heard of roadsides having hidden codes to them. It's first time for me on that one. That'll be interesting. That's on page 53. Is free and alternative energy being kept from the public? Well, duh on that. Is the Federal Reserve a scam? (laughs) Duh on that, too, but we'll find out why and how. (laughs) Are chemtrails for real? Well, enough people get sick to prove that point. 
Is there a Nazi base in Antarctica? Well, I think most of us who are into this realize, yeah, there's a Nazi base there. Alive and active today. Of course, we can't really prove it. Don't have concrete proof. Uh, I'm trying to think when I traveled there. Um, like Nancy does, I forgot what you call that. Uh, oh, you do it with your mind. You, you can travel with your mind. It'll come to me later, and I'm going to say it when I remember it later. Um, so I've been there, but I don't... I don't remember seeing the Nazi part of the base. I just saw other sections of the, the aliens were and regular people were and, and all the different divisions down there, different sections that house the different entities and groups. Uh, I'm still trying to think what, what I call that. How I did it. Ah, shoot. I'll think of it later. So where was I? Oh, yeah. Is there a Nazi base in Antarctica? But I didn't really see, I can't remember seeing the Nazis. If I go down there again, I'll have to look and see. Another chapter. Who killed JFK? Did John Titter come from the future? I don't know who's John Titter, so that'll be pretty interesting to me. Who built the spidery drones? What passed by the space shuttle Atlantis? What hoovered over O'Hare Gate C-17? What flew over Phoenix? Were the moon landings faked? I watched a show on this, um, a, a, an investigative show, had one of the astronauts and uh, Bera, what's his first name? I forgot his first name, and, and another guy. And they actually did prove out, I thought it was going to be different, I thought it was going to be a different outcome, but they actually did prove uh, that the moon landing was real. At least according to that show and the proof that they ended up getting on their investigations. They even convinced me. And that was a pretty hard thing to do. Is it Mike Bera? Oh, that doesn't sound right. Well, whatever his name is. So, who parked the moon? <laughs> I can't wait to get to that one because I've said for years that moon is a base. It's not a planet. Um, what crashed at Roswell? Is God an alien? What will happen in 2012? What will happen? Oh, yeah, because the copyright of this book was, what, 2008? Yeah, 2008. So we'll see what he said was going to happen in two. 2012 and see if it really did. 
And then the last chapter is titled, Warning. Warning, Will Robinson, warning. Okay, now, let's get into the book. We were reading about 9-11. And let's start where we left off. Considering the fact that no others, oh yeah, I'll give you a little, so, uh, they were getting to the point where, uh, I'll read this paragraph, and no one has successfully elicited an answer from failed 2008 presidential candidate and former New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani as to who told him the towers were going to collapse beforehand. Giuliani told Peter Jennings of ABC News the day of 9-11 that he was manning a temporary command center. He has also never given an explanation for why he did not go to the newly completed and hardened command center in WTC Building 7, <coughs> which collapsed later that day when someone came in and told him they must evacuate as the towers were going to come down. Obviously, it is necessary to learn who warned him of the towers collapse, how they knew of this, and why the first responders in the towers were not given that same warning. At one campaign event, when a person tried to ask this question, he was arrested and hauled away. Ha! <laughs> ha! What do you think of that? Frickin' creeps. They don't want you finding anything out. Considering the fact that no other steel-reinforced building in the history of the world ever collapsed due solely to fire, it is no wonder controversy continues over what brought down the Twin Towers. Then there is the Sol Salomon Brothers Building, better known as WTC Building 7. A 47-story steel and glass modern skyscraper that dropped symmetrically into its own foundation at about 5.25 p.m. on September 11, 2001. Although airplanes did not hit Building 7, it dropped neatly between the Verizon building and the U.S. Post Office, neither of which suffered critical damage. FEMA's WTC Building Performance Study, issued in May 2002, could only report WTC-7's loss of structural integrity was likely a result of weakening caused by fires on the 5th to 7th floors. The specifics of the fires in WTC-7 and how they caused the building to collapse remain unknown at this time. 
the best hypothesis has only a low probability of occurrence. <laughs> yeah, right. In other words, this is mere speculation, and that speculation is not likely true. <laughs> Believe it or not. To add to the mystery of Building 7, it has now been established that the BBC announced the collapse of the structure more than 20 minutes before it occurred. <laughs> 20 minutes before it occurred, they announced it. Incredibly, as the BBC presenter tells of the building's collapse, it is visible still standing behind her. <laughs> Do you all remember that? Well, I guess you all wouldn't, but a lot of you might. Uh, there are also videos on the Internet depicting New York firemen moving away from the building while shouting to bystanders that it was about to fall. And at least one person claimed to have heard a countdown before the building dropped. Now, that's new to me. I don't remember hearing that. <coughs> Isn't that interesting? This evidence of foreknowledge only substantiates the remarks of building owner Larry Silverstein, who in September 2002, during a PBS documentary entitled America Rebuilt stated I remember getting a call from the ER fire department commander telling me that they were not sure they were going to be able to contain the fire and I said we've had such terrible loss of life maybe the smartest thing to do is pull it and they made that decision to pull, and we watched the building collapse. To pull a building is acknowledged as industry slang for a controlled demolition. <clears throat> Years after Silverstein's statement, a spokesperson for Silverstein Properties said he meant pull the firemen out of Building 7. This explanation was unacceptable to knowledgeable 9-11 researchers as all firemen were withdrawn from Building 7 before 10 a.m. that morning. How did President George W. Bush's 9-11 Commission explain the collapse of Building 7? They didn't. They didn't bother to mention it on any page of their 567-page report. So willingly accepted as the final word by the corporate mass media. People, we have to start waking up. I mean, not the, um, not the ones who are awake. But to those who are thinking about waking up, please wake up and question things. Get vocal, get, get publicly vocal about it. 
the way that I have to get publicly vocal is on the radio shows that I'm on. Um, that's a way that I have as an outlet to share my opinions. Now, these are my opinions that I am sharing. I am not giving anyone uh, kudos or credit for... Uh, for being my for telling me this is what this is what it is i i usually do research i have to find it in at least 3 places and then even though i form my opinion right away and then i evaluate my opinion and try to decide now what feels good in my gut what really feels like the truth within me that I am researching on, that I have found during my researches? Please, people, do that. Start doing that. And then start sharing what your th thoughts are with other people and ask them, now, what do you think about that? That makes them think about that topic. And then they're going to think about it, and hopefully they'll research. And they'll go to their friends, and they'll say, this is what I found, this is what I was told, this is what I found out, and this is what I think about this. What do you think about it? And see, it'll just spread from person to person to person. So you don't really have to be on the air to do it. You can do it word of mouth. So, okay. I got off topic here about the book, didn't I? <laughs> so, um, well, not really off topic, but I got, I stopped reading on the book and gave you my opinions. So where was I? Oh, yes, that same mass media, if not the American public, appears to have largely forgotten two important stories connected with the 9-11 attacks. The subsequent attacks by anthrax spores that infected 23 persons killing five and the short selling of certain stocks which evinced foreknowledge of the 9-11 events. The reason for dropping mention of the anthrax attack is clear. In the immediate aftermath of the biological attacks, an unnamed CIA source told Britain's Guardian newspaper, they aren't making this stuff in caves in Afghanistan. This is prima facie evidence that the involvement of a state intelligence agency <coughs> That's interesting. I don't remember hearing about that part either. If I did, I forgot it. Uh, by 2008, it was clearly established that the mailed toxin was a very concentrated, electromagnetized, silica-laced strain of anthrax 
traceable to the secret military biochemicals weapons lab at Fort Detricks, Maryland. It could only have come from the heart of America's military. That makes me sick to my stomach. That really makes me sick to my stomach. I'm going to read that again. By 2008, it was clearly established that the male toxin was a very concentrated, electromagnetized, silica-laced strain of anthrax traceable to the secret military biochemical weapons lab at Fort Detricks, M.D., it could only have come from the heart of America's military. <sighs> One of the anthrax letters carried the phrase, Allah is great, which left the impression that the attacks were Muslim-inspired. In October 2001, Senator John McCain set the tone for the run-up to the 2003 invasion when he told David Letterman's audience the anthrax may have been a second phase of the 9-11 attacks and may have come from Iraq. <clears throat> right. Once it was determined that the anthrax was genetically identified as being the Ames strain, which is a weaponized version developed in American military laboratories, media interest waned. About 10 grams of anthrax was used in the attacks, an amount that experts testified would be virtually impossible to steal from government labs, considering the stringent security measures employed there. Kind of like a... Epstein. He died even though he was under such stringent watch. <laughs> oh, I tell you, I tell you, I tell you. We gotta wake up and smell the roses, y'all. That dude was doomed to die when they arrested him. He knew too much. He had too much. Uh, tapes, film, all that. He had too much evidence on people in supposedly high places. He also had written info. For instance, the flight logs with the people's names on them. FBI has that now. But uh, what I just read reminded me of such security measures. Right. No one is ever really safe if someone wants to get to them. I would hate to be in that position. <clears throat> and when they said the first time that Epstein... I uh, tried to commit suicide with the bruises around his necks, 
my first thought is, okay, so he was being tortured. <laughs> and they couldn't help the bruises around that torture. <laughs> but see, that's how my mind goes. It just goes straight to the, uh, what do you call it, conspiracy theory stuff. <laughs> I just I just don't trust the government anymore. I really don't. But that's my problem, not yours. At least not according, you know, I haven't given you that problem, that issue. Your decision. All right, back to this. So attacks may have come from Iraq. Once it was determined that the anthrax was genetically identified as being the Ames strain. Oh, I read that. Okay. And to steal from government labs, considering the stringent security measures employed there. That's what got me off on Epstein. <laughs> the targets of the anthrax attacks were Democratic congressmen. Thomas Daschle and Patrick Leahy, and their staffs, along with some media outlets. Both men were voicing opposition to the pending vote on the Patriot Act. These attacks were believed by some to have terrorized Congress into hastily signing into law this act which according to Representative Ron Paul and others, legislators did not have time to read. Oh, they just go ahead and pass a bill even though they don't read it. Well, that goes on all the time, y'all. I worked for lobbyists. I typed up the bills that were dictated to me by the lobbyists. And... Uh, Frickin' Congress, most of them didn't even read it, the bills, because they got paid off to pass it. <coughs> That's the way lobbying works. That's why people spend all that money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, to run for an office where they only get paid like 42000 a year. Does that make sense to anyone? It sure doesn't to me, but then I know what goes on in the background. By mid-2008, no one had been convicted in the anthrax attacks, but military biological warfare budgets had been increased to more than 20 times higher than before the attacks. One 2002 suspect in what the Associated Press described as one of the most bizarre unsolved crimes in FBI history was Stephen J. Hatfill, a government scientist involved with biological research, who was publicly named as a person of interest by the Bureau. Both Hatfill and his friends were relentlessly t tailed by agents. Finally, in June 2008, the Justice Department exonerated Hatfill, 
who received a $5.8 million settlement for his harassment. Friends termed Hatfield a poster boy for abuses of the Patriot Act. Gosh, I wonder what we could term President Trump with all the harassment he's taken. And I do appreciate he has, he and his family have endured it. I do appreciate it. By August 2008, government interest turned to Bruce Ivins, a Fort Dick, a Fort Detrick scientist who, as a top expert on the military use of anthrax, had been a member of the government team investigating the 2001 attacks. Conveniently, for anyone seeking to halt any investigation into the truth of this case, it was reported that Ivans committed suicide. Oh, here we go, a suicide. Just after Justice Department had decided to file capital murder charges against him in connection with the 9-11 anthrax attacks. <clears throat> Despite descriptions from family members, neighbors, and co-workers that Ivans was a church-going family man incapable of such a dastardly deed as the 2001 attacks, the corporate mass media, passing along government pronouncements, depicted Ivans as a homicidal sociopath. It turned out that this description came from Gene C. Dooley, an uncredentialed social worker on probation connected to a minor criminal record who reportedly was in need of funds. An associate of Ivan's anthrax expert, Dr. Merrill Nass, commented, <coughs> There has been a tremendous amount of innuendo and information put forward that has never been backed up and never been attributed to anyone. I'm very concerned about the whole concept of having significant amounts of information in a criminal case that is classified or that only the Justice Department has access to and whether that precludes justice for people who are ensnared in those cases. Well, bless her heart. <clears throat> I think it's a her. Uh, even as the controversy over Ivan's guilt continued amid further leaked information from the government, justice officials declared the 2001 anthrax attacks, the work of one lone nut, Bruce Ivins, and closed the case hoping to end any further speculation that the anthrax attacks were an inside job. <sighs> kind of wears me out. It was also widely reported to the mass media in the days following the 9-11 attacks that suspicious stock trades 
implied foreknowledge of the events. Selling stocks short, selling stocks short involves having your broker selling shares you don't yet own at a set price to a given buyer while betting or perhaps knowing you can actually acquire them later at a lower price and supply them to the buyer at the set price within a prescribed short time. If you bet right, <coughs> the difference in price is your profit. This procedure is risky and you can lose at this game, but you can also win big, especially if you have foreknowledge of an event that will negatively impact the market. Historically, if substantial short selling precedes a traumatic event, it is considered to be an indication of foreknowledge. Just prior to the 9-11 attacks, there were an unusually high number of put options purchased for the stocks of AMR Corp. and UAL Corp., the parent companies of American and United Airlines, respectively. A put option gives the bearer the right to sell at a specified price before a certain date, just like short selling. Placing a put option is betting that the stock will fall in price. That's new. I, I never knew that. I, I had heard these expressions before, but I didn't understand them. Between September 6th and between September 6 and 7, 2001, the Chicago Board of Options Exchange reported 4,744 put options on United Airlines, but only 396 call options. <clears throat> on September 10, there were 4,516 put options placed on American Airlines compared to only 748 calls. Calls reflect the belief that the stock will increase in worth. Americans' 6,000% jump in put options on the day before the attacks was not matched by any other airlines. If this activity reflected merely an industry-wide slump, there would have been approximately the same amount of put options on every airline, not just American and United. The two companies whose planes were involved in 9-11. Other questionable stock trades made just prior to 9-11 were reported by Morgan Stanley, which occupied 22 floors of the WTC. This firm witnessed the purchase of 2,157 put options during the three trading days before the 9-11 attacks, as compared to 27 per day prior to September 6. Merrill Lynch and Company 
which also had offices on 22 floors of the WTC, had 12,215 one-month put options bought during four trading days prior to 9-11, compared to the normal 252 contract contracts per day. There also was an unusually high volume of five-year U.S. Treasury note purchases made just prior to 9-11. The Wall Street Journal on October 2, 2001, noted five-year Treasury notes are among the best investments in the event of a world crisis, <coughs> especially one that hits the U.S. Although denied by the U.S. government, it is widely known that the CIA uses the Pro PROMIS, P-R-O-M-I-S, computer software to routinely monitor stock trades in real time as a possible warning sign of a terrorist attack or suspicious economic behavior. We can safely infer that the CIA could have known in virtual real-time from such trading data alone that the 9-11 attack was imminent and that it would involve two specific airlines. It also follows that they should also have been able to pinpoint the inside traders through the electronic trail. But if government investigators did indeed track the culprits behind this suspicious stock activity, it was not brought before the public, especially since the probes led to persons connected with the CIA, not Osama bin Laden. Jessica, boy. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, a source familiar with the United Trades identified Deutsche Bank Alex Brown, the um, Alex Deutsche Bank Alex period Brown, the American investment banking arm of German giant Deutsche Bank, as the investment bank used to purchase at least some of these options. Both the International Policy Institute for Counterterrorism and European investigators tracked the UAL put options to Deutsche Bank Alex Brown, a firm formed in 1999 when the German bank merged with Alex Brown, the oldest investment bank in the United States. Until 1998, the chairman of Alex. Brown was A.B. Buzzy, in quotation marks, Krongard, who on March 26, 2001, was appointed executive director of the CIA. Beginning in 1998, <coughs> He was counselor to CIA Director George Tenet, 
Krongard is a man with long standing and close ties to the financial world. Moving up through the ranks of Alex. Brown, Krongard was elected Chief Executive Officer in 1991 and then Chairman of the Board in 1994. With the merging of Alex. Brown and Bankers Trust Corp. in 1997, Krongard served as Vice Chairman of the Board until joining the CIA. Bankers Trust was acquired by Deutsche Bank in 1999, becoming the single largest bank in Europe. Krongard also served as Chairman of the Securities Industry Association. A native of Baltimore, he received degrees from Princeton University and the University of Maryland School of Law and served as an infantry officer in the Marine Corps. He lived in Baltimore, huh? I wonder if he still lives there. So the stock activity that indicated foreknowledge of 9-11 could not be traced to Obama's in <laughs> Osama bin Laden. <laughs> but to persons connected with the CIA. Within weeks, this incredible story of high-level profiteering based on the short-selling of certain stocks dropped off the corporate mass media's radar screen, never to be heard from again. I'm surprised it was up there that short a time. If all this was not strange enough, there are severe problems with the official account of what hit the Pentagon. According to the government, Hani Hanjour, identified as one of the Muslim hijackers of American Flight 77, took control and slammed his Boeing 757 into the west wall of the Pentagon at full throttle. The resulting explosion and fire claimed the lives of the crew and its 64 passengers out of capacity, out of a capacity of 289, as well as 125 persons in the building. Okay, let me look this dude up. Oh, Hanny Handjur, didn't, didn't he give us a list of the people? Yeah, he did. Here's the list, but I don't see Hanny Hanger on it. <clears throat> the ones that were uh, seen after the attack, or, yeah, after the attacks. I don't see that Hanny Hanger on this list of one, two, three, four, five, seven people who were seen after the plane crashes, but were reported to be in them. Oh, let me see. Where am I? <sighs> to control. Okay. But numerous problems and questions plagued this account from the very beginning. 
Initially, government reports stated that the plane had struck the Pentagon's lawn before ricocheting into the wall. Well, that's interesting. I never heard that theory. However, photos posted on the Internet before the end of the day clearly showed an unmarked green lawn with no major airliner debris in sight. The story was changed to state that the Boeing 757 actually had struck the wall dead on, bored its way into the steel-reinforced exterior, the wings and tail folding up to form a torpedo-like missile, then burst into flames so hot that virtually the entire craft was consumed, which accounted for the lack of debris. What? The lack of debris? Huh, interesting. Because <coughs> I know of a tire that was found on a desk. Hmm. Inexplicably, within a few days, the FBI stated that all the passengers on Flight 77 had been identified by their fingerprints. Now, wait a minute! Then burst into flames so hot that virtually the entire craft was consumed, which accounted for the lack of debris. And then, <coughs> inexplicably, within a few days, the FBI... FBI stated that all the passengers on Flight 77 had been identified by their fingerprints. What the? What? WTF? How can they be any people to have fingerprints to be identified if all the debris was consumed? Do the bodies have magical abilities that they're not affected by the fire? They wouldn't be consumed in the airplane that was entirely consumed with a lack of debris. Just questioning here, y'all. Just questioning. There was no explanation of how fingerprints... Ah, here we go. There was no explanation of how fingerprints were obtained from the crash which reportedly involved a fire so hot it melted an entire airplane, including wheels, jet engines, wings, and tail. Nancy, the tire on the desk, and this is saying, involved a fire so hot it melted an entire airplane, including wheels, jets, engines, wings, and tail. Something smells a little fishy here. <clears throat> Unfortunately for the official account, photos taken of the hole in the Pentagon prior to the wall collapse clearly show a hole no more than 15 by 20 feet in the ground floor with no evidence of wings, engines, or wheel assemblies. The official account photos taken of the hole in the Pentagon prior to the wall collapse 
clearly show a hole no more than 15 by 20 feet in the ground floor with no evidence of wings, engines, or wheel assemblies. A Boeing 757 has a wingspan of 124 feet and a height of 44 feet. That's four stories. The two Rolls-Royce turbofan engines, each weighing nearly 2,000 pounds, would have made their own separate holes in the wall, but none are seen. Very interesting. The 757's fuselage, with about a 13 feet diameter, indeed could fit the original hole, but it is made entirely from aluminum and would have crumpled up against the steel-supported cement wall of the Pentagon like a beer can. Oh, crunch? Yikes. Jeez. There was also a major problem with the named pilot, Hanny Hanjor, who only one month before 9-11 was not allowed to rent a small Cessna 172 at Freeway Airport in Bowie, Maryland, because in three tests he could not control the craft and had much difficulty in speaking English. Plus, there is the problem of the air cushion. Any airplane must slow almost to stall speed to land because at flight speed it pushes an air cushion before it making landing impossible. A Boeing 757 traveling at 500 miles per hour would have an air cushion preventing it from getting closer than perhaps 50 or 60 feet from the ground. This condition was supported by data recording information released by the government in 2006. According to pilotsfor911truth.org, the data showed an altitude of 180 feet. This altitude has been determined to reflect pressure altitude as set by 29.92 INHG. Oh, inches of mercury used to determine barometric pressure on the altimeter. The actual local pressure for DCA, Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport, at impact time was 30.22 INHG. The air for this discrepancy is 300 feet meaning the actual aircraft altitude was 300 feet higher than indicated at the moment in time period, which means aircraft altitude was 480 feet above sea level. And in parentheses it says MSL, 75-foot margin for error according to Federal 
aviation regulations. Stated the pilot's sight, period. They added, the aircraft is too high even for the official released video of the five frames where you see something cross the Pentagon lawn at level altitude, attitude. The five frames of video captured by the parking gate cam are in direct conflict with the aircraft flight data recorder information released by the National Transportation Safety Board. Furthermore, the recently released data shows Flight 77 on a different flight path than stated in the official narrative, one in which it could not have knocked down the streetlight poles so well depicted in that day's photos. This discrepancy adds weight to the theory that a jumbo jet did fly over the Pentagon, as stated by several witnesses, but did not strike the building, an event apparently seen by no one, including some 82 security cameras trained on the structure. The videotapes from the cameras were confiscated by the FBI that day and have never been released to the public with the exception of a few frames that show an explosion at the Pentagon but do not show a large jet plane. The account of raging fire able to disintegrate an entire airplane is disputed by photos of the Pentagon taken that day, which depict undamaged wooden tables, oops, plastic computers, and even a paper book along with the account of April Gallup, who with her small son, both injured in the explosion, nevertheless climbed to safety unharmed through the hole in the Pentagon's west wall. Very interesting. From another story I've heard. And from what I saw with my eyes. But it was on TV, so it could have been messed with. What I saw with my eyes, that is. Boy, we're having that afternoon storm. And it's taken out my, uh, what do you call it, my TV, because I have satellite dish now. <laughs> but yeah, my internet is still working, so that's pretty cool. <clears throat> okay, back to this book. I had to take a little, uh, I had to take a little rest here from all this data that is so contrary to what I've heard. <laughs> My brain has to try to process this new stuff. Uh, let's see. Such issues comprise only a short list of the more pertinent and troubling questions about 9-11 that have not been addressed or adequately explained. Evidently, the watchdog mass media has been cowed by its corporate 
masters. Now, see, this is when I wish this was live so Nancy could be here to discuss this with me. Because this is pretty interesting from what she and I have discussed before. This, I wish she was here. This is when, this is one of the cons of pre-recording my uh, Durfee show. Dolly reads for you. <clears throat> Let's see. Mass media has been cowed by its corporate masters. Nor have these and many other questions been answered by any of the official government investigations, including President Bush's hand-picked panel. Well, of course he had to hand-pick it. <laughs> I won't go there. The National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States is the name of that hand-picked panel. Popularly known as the 9-11 Commission. Bush initially tried to appoint globalist Henry Kissinger. Whoa, there's a Kissinger. That Kissinger dude, hey, he's just living forever. Evil as he is. Maybe that's why he's so evil. Uh, Bush initially tried to appoint globalist Henry Kissinger to head this commission, but was thwarted by public outcry that caused Kissinger to decline the position. <laughs> People were sick of him. <laughs> they were kind of on to his evilness. And I understand the dude is still alive today. Can you believe it? I should research that when I get done reading here. See if he's still alive. His second choice, the team of political veterans Lee Hamilton and Thomas Keene, later admitted that their investigation was hindered by foot dragging at the White House and contradictory testimony from both NORAD and the FAA. <laughs> so, NORAD and the FAA's fighting on this stuff. <laughs> I gotta, I want to mark this, because uh, Nancy and I will probably start talking about this. Where did it start? The passengers, let's see. Uh, right here on this page it started. Let's see. And I got a pencil right here so I can make notes. Plain. Pentagon. Pentagon. Okay, got that marked. Just in case, Nancy, you and I discuss this so that we can read this and compare to what you know. Okay, where are we? Oh, yeah, Kissinger to, to decline the position. His second choice, the team of political veterans, Lee Hamilton and Thomas Keene, later admitted that their investigation, this is the, yeah, was hindered by foot-dragging at the White House and contradictory testimony from both NORAD and the FAA. 
the growing 9-11 truth movement, joined by many of the victims' families, remains divided in their view of the real conspiracy. You know, I, I see that my hour is over, so I'm going to have to take up this in my second hour. We'll be okay. Second hour. Eight. Twenty-one. Nineteen. So you'll hear it because... I just am sending these an hour at a time, recording these an hour at a time. So for now, I'm going to get out of here and start the second recording. Okay, for the second hour of this book. Oh, I forgot one little item. Here, let me get it. There, that's better, isn't it? Okay. Um, his choice, his second choice, the team of political veterans, Lee Hamilton and Thomas Keene, later admitted that their investigation was hindered by foot dragging at the White House and contradictory testimony from both NORAD and the FAA. Jeez. The growing 9-11 truth movement, joined by many of the victims' families, remains divided in their view of the real conspiracy, sometimes referred to as L-I-H-O-P, which means let it happen on purpose, and M-I-H-O-P, which means made it happen on purpose. The L-I-H-O-P argument is that certain individuals within the federal government had foreknowledge of the attacks, yet did nothing to prevent them, as the attacks furthered their political agenda, while the M-I-H-O-P supporters took notice of the close relationships between the Bush and bin Laden families, as reported in the Texas media, as well as the role of Saudi Arabia and the CIA in the creation of Al-Qaeda. They argue that the attacks were actually pre precipitated by elements within the United States government. A suspicion echoed by a near-majority of the population in several national polls. <clears throat> A growing number of Americans are echoing the thoughts of several ATS members who noticed the government's reticence to deal openly and honestly with 9-11. Another member offered some good guidelines in answering a question about what constitutes a conspiracy theory that most people would accept when he wrote, 
An acceptable theory has no agenda, has supporting evidence provided to back it up, and acknowledges generally accepted facts, rather than conveniently ignoring them. In the case of 9-11, this simple maxim should be applied to both sides of the controversies. The controversy over the truth of 9-11 attacks undoubtedly will continue for some time. How long it will take before the corporate mass media are allowed to objectively investigate and report on this festering scandal is anybody's guess. They're saying how long before, how long it will take before the corporate mass media, the corporate mass media lost their credibility quite a while ago. If they investigated it, I wouldn't believe a frickin' word they said after the investigation. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's the end of that chapter, but... Before we move on to the next chapter, I do want to tell you that Nancy Hopkins has written a book called The 9-11 Crusade. And uh, here's what she says about it. The 9-11 Crusade is a work of fiction. What makes it so compelling is that it revolves around the ongoing debate concerning the events of 9-11. I, I would say, if, if you're interested in the 9-11 at all, read her book. It's free. There's a PDF version, a free one, that you can get. You don't have to buy it on Amazon. Nancy doesn't get any money from Amazon. They frickin' cheat her out of it, out of the money that she's supposed to get from Amazon. So, um, if you go to cosmicreality.com slash books, and then it has dash dash, blogs.html you can uh, see where you can f download her free PDF version of the 9-11 Crusade book. And it's very interesting because it's based on facts that she has found. But if she was to write it as a as a Nonfiction. Uh, there could be a lot of ramifications of all sorts of different kinds. So she wrote her book, a fiction, a fiction of it, built a story around what she found. And I think you'll find it very interesting. Okay, so I did that. I wanted to make sure I let you all know that. Let me put this down. I'm on my computer. I got several things going on the computer. Okay, so here's another chapter titled, Is the Supply of Oil Peaking? 
He has a table here. Who, what, when, where, why. And the who is those who claim that the world's supply of oil has peaked and is now in decline. What? If the supply of oil has peaked, we can look for higher prices in worldwide turmoil. When? Now and in the foreseeable future. Where? Worldwide. Why? If the world's supply of petrochemicals indeed faces decline, lifestyles and pol politics will have to change and new energy sources must be found. Or they can release the energy uh, sources that we have had all along and tr tried hiding from us. That's my opinion. Is the world running out of oil? Adherents of the notion of peak oil say yes. Everybody has an opinion. Even me. <laughs> okay. It is true that all nations are addicted to oil, primarily because the most profitable business on the planet is arms. With the United States as the largest weapons supplier in the world, other nations have followed suit. All war machines run on petroleum, either as fuel or lubricants. But war machines are only a part, a small part, of the picture. Apart from vehicle fuel, oil provides the foundation for civilization. Your plastic computer and TV remote are made from petroleum, as are all plastics, food wrapping, shampoo, garbage bags, clothes softeners, some furniture, most medicines, and even water bottles. All of this is delivered to you by the transportation industry, which runs on petroleum fuels. I was wondering, where's he going with this one? <laughs> yeah, the transportation. <coughs> As outlined by Rep. Tom Udall, a Democrat from New Mexico, the price of petroleum fuel is not the only factor to consider. During congressional peak oil hearings, Udall noted, some say that market forces will take care of the peak oil problem. They argue that as we approach or pass the peak of production, the price of oil will increase and alternatives will become more competitive. Following this, consumers will act to replace our need for non-petroleum energy resources. This philosophy is partly true. However, the main problem with this argument is that current U.S. oil prices do not accurately reflect the full social costs of oil consumption. 
Currently in the United States, federal and state taxes add up to about 40 cents per gallon of gasoline. Per frickin' gallon, 40 cents. Good Lord. No wonder the bushes were so damn rich. <coughs> Where was I before he got all flustered here? Oh yeah, 40 cents a gallon. A World Resources Institute analysis found that the fuel-related costs not covered by drivers are at least twice that much. What? You're okay. Lay down. The current price of oil does not include the full cost of road maintenance, health and environmental costs attributed to air pollution, the financial risks of global warming from increasing carbon dioxide emissions, or the threats to national security from importing oil. Because the price of oil is artificially low, significant private investments in alternative technologies that provide a long-term payback does not exist. I'm not moving it, Amber. Oh, she's having a fit because I got the computer beside me where she usually lays. But she was outside. And any time she hears me talking, she has to come in here because somebody might touch me. <laughs> she can't have that. I belong to her. Amber is one of my cats. I have two. They're sisters. I've had them since they were four weeks old. <coughs> and now they're... They were born in 2003. They're 16 years old now. Man, you're an old lady. <laughs> Until, I'm back to the book. Until oil and its alternatives compete in a fair market, new technologies will not thrive. In other words... If basic oil prices rise significantly or there is a shortage, virtually everything you buy will go up in cost. It has been stated that the world will be consuming nearly 50,000 gallons of oil every second by 2008. I wonder if it was, <laughs> or it did. I wouldn't even know how to look that up on the internet. And this number will only increase as the world's population continues to grow. Let me see. Oh, yeah. Uh, according to Dr. Colin Campbell, considered by many the world's leading oil expert, Humankind has reached peak oil. Campbell defined peak oil as the maximum rate of the production of oil in any area under consideration, 
recognizing that it is a finite natural resource subject to depletion. Um, I'm reading this insert he has here. Hold on, let me see if it's somewhere else in the body of the book. No, let me read this insert he put here. It is a well-known fact that Henry Ford originally designed the Model T Ford to run on fuel provided by hemp. Yes, hemp, as a potential biofuel. Hemp can easily provide the energy as we, the energy we as a nation, as a planet, would require. As a renewable resource, it literally cannot be beat. Unlike the much-touted corn biofuels, hemp does not need fertilizers or insecticides as hemp can actually enrich the soil and is naturally resistant to insects. See, that's one of those things they don't want people to remember or share with anybody if they do, or let the news out if people don't know it. They wouldn't make so much money then. Okay, let me see. The term peak has been coined from the work of American ge geophysicist Marion King Hubert, who in 1956 predicted a peak in U.S. oil production by 1970, followed by steady decline worldwide. Initially, many petroleum experts scoffed at the Hubert Peak Theory, but today it has gained respect, even though his projection of reaching worldwide peak oil in 2000 has been moved forward to 2010. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, the United States, as opposed to other nations, uses about two-thirds of all oil use for transportation. One-fifth goes to industrial uses, while the remainder goes to electric energy production, both residential and commercial. Some experts claim the only spare oil production capacity left in the world is in the organization of the petroleum exporting countries, OPEC. Oh, here's Sagey, my other cat. Composed primarily of Middle Eastern nations, peak oil advocates believe that non-OPEC oil production limits have already been reached. I gotta turn the light on. It's pretty dark. And <clears throat> oh dear! Almost knocked the light over. Is it gonna? Oh yeah, it looks like storm clouds moving in. Dog on it. Uh, it's no secret anymore 
that for every nine barrels of oil we consume, we are only dis discovering one, reported the BP, former, formerly British Petroleum, Statistical Review of World Energy. All the easy oil and gas in the world has pretty much been found. Now comes the harder work in finding and producing oil from more challenging environments and work areas, said William J. Cummings, a spokesman for ExxonMobil. Such, the sky is falling, fears, have been criticized by those who note that peak oil has become the pet theory of experts who are all involved in the oil business. It is apparent that citing a decline in the oil supply provides the rationale for higher prices and more exploration. Oh. But critics of the giant multinational oil companies are not the only ones questioning the idea of peak oil. Cambridge Energy Research Associates CERA, composed of energy expert consultants, also questions Hubert's theory. Despite his valuable contribution, M. King Hubert's methodology falls down because it does not consider likely resource growth, application of new technology, basic commercial factors, or the impact of geopolitics on production. His approach does not work in all cases, including on the United States itself, and cannot reliably model a global production output. Put more simply, the case for the imminent peak is flawed, as it is production in 2005 in the lower 48 in the United States was 66% higher than Hubert projected, stated a 2006 CIRA report. The International Energy Association, IEA, joined such criticism. The concept of peak oil production and its timing are em emotive subjects which raise intense debate. So much rests on the definition of which segment of global oil production is deemed to be at or approaching peak. Certainly, our forecast suggests that the non-OPEC conventional crude component of global production appears for now to have reached an effective plateau rather than a peak. I'm looking ahead because this section just isn't interesting me. Okay, but I know it probably is interesting some of you out there. So I'll read it. Oil sands, also known as tar sands, hold an oily viscous petroleum that requires treatment before becoming gasoline. Oil sands may represent as much as two-thirds 
of the world's total petroleum resources, with at least 1.7 trillion barrels in the Canadian Athabasca oil sands, and perhaps 1.8 trillion barrels in the Venezuelan Orinoco tar sands compared to 1.75 trillion barrels of conventional oil worldwide, most of it in Saudi Arabia and other Middle Eastern countries. Between them, the Canadian and Venezuelan deposits contain about 3.6 trillion barrels of oil. That's more than twice as much as the amount of conventional oil. The Canadian oil sands have been in commercial production since the, ori- since the original Great Canadian oil sands. Now Suncor mine began operating in 1967. According to the Royal Dutch Shell 2006 annual report, its Canadian oil sands unit made an after-tax profit of $21.75 per barrel. Canada is the largest supplier of oil to the U.S., with more than a million barrels per day coming from tar sands. At that rate of depletion, the Athabasca oil sands should continue to produce for about 1,800 years. Oh my gosh. Not only do many people question the Hubert peak oil theory, but also recently some experts have begun to question the whole concept of fossil fuel. In the mid-1800s, when the Industrial Age began, requiring larger and larger amounts of petroleum demand, brought unprecedented growth to the fledgling to the fledgling oil industry. Scientists were at a loss to explain exactly where oil came from in the first place. The fact that organic matter was found in the raw petroleum pumped from the ground gave rise to the theory that oil was formed by swamps from the Permian Age settling layer by layer over millennia compressing vegetation underground until it formed. Australian geoscientist Dr. Siegfried E. Tischler pointed out, according to the accepted theory of oil formation, organic matter living in the oceans sinks to the bottom and then decays there to form crude oil. While this might be happening to some extent, in the Black Sea, there is no present-day example, emphasis in the original, of this happening anywhere on the surface of the Earth. Oh, there's the rain. No wonder it got dark in here. It's only 12.48 in the afternoon. Storm's early today. But it was a 1999 book that threatened everything we thought we knew about oil and its origins. 
The book was The Deep Hot Biosphere by Dr. Thomas Gold, an Austrian astrophysicist who remained at Cornell University until his death in 2004. The book was an expansion of Gold's 1992 paper presented to the National Academy of Sciences. Dr. Gold was no scientific lightweight. He was a member of the American Academy of Science, as well as a member of England's Royal... Oh, excuse me, I had a hiccup. As well as a member of England's Royal Society. Briefly, Dr. Gold stated that so-called fossil fuels are actually the product of natural processes deep within the earth. It is created from underground methane sources, which feed a vast subterranean biosphere of bacteria. <coughs> These hydrocarbon microbes, in turn, produce the hydrocarbons of coal, oil, and gas. Before laughing off Dr. Gold's ideas, remember that the large oil companies use oil-absorbing microbes to clean up tanker spills. <coughs> the non-bile... The, this non-biologic or abiogenic, A-B-I-O-G-E-N-I-C theory of hydrocarbon formation is supported by the fact that some drillers, particularly the Russians, have found hydrocarbons far from traditional sedimentary formations. Conventional oil experts have attempted to explain this anomaly, saying that the oil migrated or slipped laterally away from normal sediment deposits. And here's another uh, insert he has. But if we must continue to be dependent upon petroleum and geofuels, we have not even begun to tap the available supply. Recently, the RAND think tank announced that shale oil finds in Montana, Wyoming, and several other states would provide the United States with petroleum for literally centuries. But if that weren't enough, we always have coal. My grandparents, uh, Grandma and Grandpa Howard, lived in this house in Toledo, and uh, in it, the house had a basement. It wasn't, it wasn't a very tall basement because my grandpa had to bend over to walk in it. Um, but uh, it had a coal bin and a place where the coal truck would come and and put the chute from the truck down 
down to where it could go in the basement. And they would put the coal in the basement in this certain area. And then Grandpa would have to, uh, or Grandma, if Grandpa wasn't home, he'd have to shovel the coal from the coal pile into the big, huge uh, furnace. It was a round type of a, a kind of round, huge metal thing uh, that sat in the basement, and then it had the huge ductwork that went up on the ceiling of the basement, but under the floor up of the first of the upstairs. <coughs> It was only a one-story house. So, that's how they heated the house, was with coal. You don't see that many, many places anymore. It always intrigued me, and that furnace always scared the bejeebers out of me. And it's big duckwork sneaking through the basement up above my head. <laughs> It was very interesting to me as a child for some reason. Okay, so where was I? Oh yeah, I read this. Salt domes were an early and easy source of oil, but it is now known that oil may be found in many other geological structures. In 1986, Dr. Gohl advised American and Swedish drilling teams in Sweden who penetrated to a depth of nearly five miles, far beyond sedimentary formations and the possibility of fossils, and yet they found petroleum. <coughs> in 1991, the Siljan Ring site was producing 80 barrels a day, by 1998, Russian drillers had completed 300 producing oil wells in the Ring area. Furthermore, the deep Swedish wells produced not only crude oil, but also viable bacteria from the depths of the earth. <coughs> also supporting this theory is the fact that no oil coal, or diamonds have ever been produced in a laboratory based on the conditions of compressed and heated organic matter. Then there is the matter of tree trunks cutting diagonally through many layers of coal, which according to present theories was produced by vegetation compressed underground for thousands of years. Over that kind of time, it is obvious that tree trunks would have long since disintegrated. Dr. Gold determined that coal is produced by the same deep underground abiogenic process that creates oil. Furthermore, there are the incredible reports that some oil reservoirs are actually refilling.
The phenomenon of petroleum reserves that seem to refill themselves is widely reported, notably in the Middle East and along the U.S. Gulf Coast. I regard these occurrences as strong evidence for the deep earth gas theory, said Dr. Gold. Very interesting. <clears throat> U.S. Gulf along the U.S. Gulf Coast. Hmm. Here's another insert. As an energy source, the United States has coal reserves that could easily supply our nation's energy needs. Yes, additional technologies would be required to make the coal-based fuels cleaner, but... Nevertheless, this is certainly a viable energy alternative to petroleum, and one that would make the United States energy independent and, in the long run, an energy supplier to the rest of the world. Russian scientists have known for years of the possibility that oil is a byproduct of microbes deep within the earth that are independent from the photosynthesis process of surface vegetation. Western scientists have not bought into this idea, as it would render all of their textbooks and years of schooling obsolete. This is this... So... Uh, so if they bury their head in the sand uh, and ignore all the evidence, that's going to make it not so? Oh, these frickin' assholes. That's, uh, excuse me. I'm getting a little ticked off with these people. Yet, look at me, who hates change. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> How many times have I tried to bury my head in the sand? <laughs> Who am I to judge? <laughs> but I do, I do uh, eventually let the new stuff come in. <laughs> I just fight it. Of course, anymore, I'm just too freaking worn out to fight anything. I just look at it as, oh, wow, isn't that interesting? <laughs> and go on with my life. <laughs> Once in a while, though, I can get upset about a change. <laughs> I can't help but laugh about it. <clears throat> uh, this is the same hidebound thinking that prevents Egyptologists from accepting the geological evidence that the Great Pyramid was constructed more than 10,000 years ago, long before the arrival of the Egyptian civilization. <laughs> I can understand that thinking. That would kind of crush their world. <sighs> the connection of crude oil with life, concluded Dr. Tischler, is entirely different from what is currently assumed. Oil does not come from... Oh, there's typo here. Let me figure it out. 
concluded Dr. Tischler. The connection of crude oil with life is entirely different from what is currently assumed. Oil does not form from life, but the hydrocarbons from the inner parts of the globe support life in the deep, hot biosphere. End of his quote. And he didn't do the typo. I was reading it wrong. <coughs> I admit it. A recent study published in Science Magazine corroborated the idea of oil being produced by natural earth processes. The lead scientist in this study, Gyora Proskurowski, of the School of Oceanography at the University of Washington at Seattle, stated that hydrogen-rich fluids were being vented at the bottoms of the Atlantic Ocean, apparently by abiotic synthesis of hydrocarbons in the mantle of the Earth. Furthermore, in 2005, NASA officials announced that a probe of Titan, Jupiter's largest moon, showed abundant quantities of carbon-13 methane of abiotic origin. If Dr. Gold's theories prove correct, and there is increasing evidence in support of them, then petroleum reserves are much greater than noted in the establishment media. The political impact of such a reversal of thought would be staggering. After all, it is the specter of worldwide oil shortages that fuels the arguments of such New World Order stalwarts as Al Gore, who wants people to give in to more centralized government programs in the name of conservation and environmentalism. Right. Obviously, if the theories of Dr. Gold, Dr. Tischler, Russian scientists, and others are correct, that oil is a continuing chemical process, which takes place in the Earth's mantle. The theory of peak oil falls apart. <coughs> Even if it is at this time difficult to produce oil or gas from basement rock in most instances. Due to the depth of wells, the discovery of oil welling up from below sedimentary rock frees us from the fossil fuel myth, commented Matt Verdu in a review of Dr. Gold's book. Reserve calculations for oil and gas fields are based on the false assumption that those resources are fixed pockets of fossil fuel, rather than way stations for oil and gas welling up from below. We can stop cannibalizing each other for oil according to the fossil fuel pro propaganda, and we should not allow gasoline to be priced as if in blood. 
I agree with him there. <coughs> Such cannibalizing was taking place in 2008 with the U.S. troops still bogged down in Iran following the unprovoked 2003 invasion. That's why they're going over there, y'all. It's for their money that they can put in their pockets. That's the bottom line. Saddam Hussein, according to Dali, it's my opinion only, Saddam Hussein read, readying a nuclear bomb within six weeks proved totally false, as did the charge of hidden weapons of mass destruction. After five years of war, it was clear that the reason for U.S. occupation had more to do with oil than with freedom or democracy. Ha! See, they agree with me. In mid-2007, the New York Times reported an estimated 100 billion barrels of oil lay under Iraq, with the Saudi Arabian reserves becoming depleted. Oil executives looked to Iraq to fill any future gap. There was, an, uh, there was all an extension of long-standing U.S. strategy it, that is using cheap imported oil as long as possible while preserving domestic oil for the future in the event of an oil embargo or when higher prices will make recovery more profitable. Western oil reserves in California and Wyoming notorious for the teapot dome scandal of the 1920s, are largely unexploited as are reserves in Canada and Alaska. Numerous domestic wells have been declared depleted and remain capped. A depleted oil well does not mean there is no oil down the hole. It simply means that it would cost more energy to recover the remaining supply than could be gained from burning it. Steam injection is one method for invigorating such depleted oil wells. Conventional thinking is that steam injection is not cost-effective due to the fact that too much fuel, coal, wood, etc., must be burned to produce the steam necessary for this process. However, Dan Foster, who helped pioneer a technology that burns propane and compressed air to produce copious amounts of steam, has proven this a viable means of regaining oil from depleted wells. In 2007, Foster used this method to bring a Texas well producing only a quarter of a barrel of oil a day up to 37 barrels after only six hours of steaming. All the controversy over the origins of oil does not even address the growing interest in biodiesel and ethanol, fuels produced from organic materials such as animal fats, soy, grain, and corn. 
animal fats, so they'd have to kill the animals. I'm not thinking about that. Nor does it look back to the, at the fact that Nazi Germany was producing prodigious... I can say this word. Was producing prodigious amounts of synthetic fuel toward the end of World War II the formulas for which are still held in classified government files. While the idea of peak oil can be called into serious question, this should not be used as a rationale for the continued production of gas-guzzling SUVs or the frivolous use of petroleum, because arguments over the origin and quantity of oil aside the waste and air pollution being created by the extensive use of petroleum threatens all life on, on Earth. <coughs> okay, we're done with that chapter. Yay! I hope some of you enjoyed it anyway. New chapter. Why did the Air Force change its story on Stephenville? And here's the five W's here. Hold on. Who? The citizens living in the area around Stephenville, Texas. What? Hundreds of persons reported sightings of unconventional aerial craft as well as strange, multicolored, moving lights in the sky. When? beginning New Year's Day 2008 and continuing well into February. Where? Residents of Stephenville, Texas, located approximately 70 miles southwest of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and surrounding towns including Dublin, Harbin, excuse me, and Selden. Why? U.S. Air Force officials, after initially stating that they had no aircraft in the area of Stephenville, reversed course after two weeks and announced that 10 F-16 jets explained the nearly month-and-a-half-long sightings. Many in the public and even some mainstream news media have greeted this explanation with disbelief. <coughs> Ricky Sorrells lives in an unpretentious home in Dublin, Texas, about eight miles west of Stephenville. On New Year's Day 2008, Sorrells decided to go deer hunting near his home. 2007 had been a wet year in north-central Texas, and the deer were plentiful. The sun was just setting behind some oak trees near his house when the 37-year-old welder set out carrying a rifle with a nine-power telescopic sight. For some reason, I don't know what, I'd look up and look back down. I don't know what made me look up. But then I realized what I had seen with my eyes and immediately looked back up. There was this thing. It covered from 
I could not see the edges in my tree canopy. I couldn't see the front of it. I didn't think about looking behind me to see if I could see an edge that way, Sorrels told a journalist. Sorrels thought, What in the world is this? And after adjusting his rifle's scope, peered through it at the object above him. He estimated the object hung silently a mere three hundred feet over his heading, blocking his vision as far as he could see. I looked back up there at it, and I can see what I would call a mirage coming off of it. It wasn't steam. I don't know, really. I've seen it like on a hot highway, how the heat waves come up. And this was coming down. I really didn't know what to think. I was not scared, so I dropped my gun, and then I really started noticing how big this thing was. I noticed. I also noticed that it had these round indentations. They were in a grid pattern, all running left to right and front to back. They were all placed about forty feet apart. They were deep, like maybe four to six feet deep into this craft. It basically looked like a piece of sheet iron that had been pressed. I couldn't see any nuts, so any nuts, no bolts, no rivets, no welds, no seams. I was really studying the structure of this, trying to get an idea about how it was built. It is huge! While I was looking at this craft, it drifted to the right by about 100 feet, and I remember looking to my left to see if I could see the edge of this thing, and I could not see the edge of it. I turned back to my right, and I was like, wow! This is crazy! As Sorrels watched with mixed emotions, What is it? What is it going to do next? Do I need to get out of here? The object moved swiftly off and out of sight. Sorrels could not form a conclusion as to what he had seen, but before the end of January, he had sighted the object twice more. I hope it's our military. I hope we have something that is this advanced. If it's not ours, then we're in trouble. I don't know the capacities, the capabilities of this thing to move at such speed that it has, and as big as it is, does it, does it have the cap capability of weapons? I don't know. But if they can build this, I'd sure hate to see if they got mad at us. You know what I'm saying, he said. But Sorrel's sighting was only the beginning of the activity around Stevensville. Stevenville. Constable Leroy Gayton, along with his eight-year-old son, sighted a red glow in the sky on January 8 that faded and later reappeared. Later, he said, he saw bright white lights that seemed to 
bounced around in the sky and took off at a blazing speed. Here's an insert. I'm really glad that this mass sighting has not fallen through the cracks yet, for I believe this is by far one of the most significant sightings to date. Whether it be extraterrestrial or man-made, it is completely extraordinary in every way. And that's the end of the insert. In the early morning hours of February 2, Gayton saw a similar object, and this time he was ready with a video camera. I videotaped it for about 40 minutes. It was an object with red, green, and blue lights. I was on U.S. Highway 377, looking south towards Dublin. It was about a quarter of the size of a full moon. It was several thousand feet up, maybe 4,500 or 5,000 feet up. I don't know. I zoomed in 168 times, and you could see it was round and spinning, something that could not be seen with the naked eye, and you could almost see through it. There was what looked like a pyramid or triangle shape on the inside of the thing. Early on February 9, Gatons was in Stephenville looking toward Dublin when he again shot video of a light lighted spinning object. I videoed for 10 minutes and zoomed in but it was too far. It was moving but not real fast. It was spinning and shooting off colors. I'm fairly certain this thing spins. This time I could not see it see through it. We went to County Road 847, and we took several pictures with the new Canon camera we purchased with a special lens. It appeared to be the same thing that was hovering southeast of my house, and we never lost sight of it. Then my sister called, and they saw it again, too. It headed southwest. Then we lost sight of the first one we'd seen for a little bit, and then it reappeared. Then there was two of them, one in the southwest sky and one in the northeast sky. These were not isolated incidents. Many others were beginning to report both huge objects and colorful moving lights in the sky. <clears throat> Stephen Allen of Selden, Texas, southeast of Stephenville, is a pilot and owner of LNS Enterprises and Texas Freight in nearby Glen Rose. On the evening of Tuesday, January 8, he noticed flashing white lights about 3,500 feet above his house. He told ABC News that the lights formed a rectangle pattern that spanned about a mile long and a half mile wide, and the pattern was headed towards Stephenville at 3,000 mi <coughs> miles per hour. So, we need to stop here. Oh, I want to read this insert. While they, while they, the Air Force, were doing training operations, did they happen to notice the mile-long UFO? 
The military needs to brush up on their lying techniques. <laughs> That's it. That's funny. That's so true. <laughs> so uh, I've come to a stopping point because of time, and we'll take this up next week. Thanks for listening, y'all. Bye-bye. <laughs>